This is Living on the Edge, a special project from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. There's a term that we often use called weathering, um, which is the, the, the effects of chronic stress on the body. It really just accelerates the aging process. Physician Keisha Davis outside of Washington, D.C. Being poor puts your body in a constant state of stress, and we know that releases uh, certain hormones and reactions in the body that cause us to age faster. It relates to elevated blood pressure, to obesity, to, um, to diabetes. Many of the chronic diseases that we see are worst by uh, you know, being in constant stress. And I think just the state of being poor um, and the constant navigation that poor folks have to navigate, the, you know, waking up early to catch the extra bus to get to a place, the, am I going to make it back in time from this job to pick my kids up? You know, those are things, yes, that I think we all have to navigate, but the, um, the ability to take a break from that stress um, when you're poor often doesn't happen. This relentless challenge was depicted by Will Smith, who starred in the 2006 movie The Pursuit of Happiness. It's about a man who compounded his personal misfortune with a pattern of bad decisions. This part of my life is called paying taxes. If you didn't pay them, the government could stick their hands into your bank account and take your money. Dad! No warning, nothing. It can't be too late. That, that, that's my money. How is somebody just going to just take my money? I, I was... Listen, I, that's all the money that I have. You cannot go into my bank No. It was the 25th of September. I remember that day. That's the day that I found out there was only $21.33 left in my bank account. I was broke. There is not the ability to pay someone to clean your home uh, when things feel overwhelming. Uh, there's not the ability to take that weekend getaway uh, to, to detach from it all. Uh, there's often, when you're poor, not even an opportunity to take a full break for lunch. Um, and so that constant navigation, that constant worry about money, how am I going to do this, how am I going to provide for my kids, how am I going to make it from day to day... Hey, listen, I need the rent. Yeah. I can't wait anymore. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm good for that, Charlie. I'm, I'm going to get it. Why don't you go two blocks over the Mission Inn Motel? It's half what you pay here. Listen, Chris, I need you out of here in the morning. The hell am I supposed to be out of here by tomorrow? I got painters coming in. All right, all right look, I, I need more time than that, Charlie. No. All right, I'll paint it myself. All right, but I, I just, I got to have some more time. To, I, I got my son up in here. And says Dr. Keisha Davis, the unremitting stress of poverty may have other consequences that complicate a person's ability to dig out from under what feels like a mountain of aggravations and insults. It makes it a lot more difficult to attend to medical issues when they do arise. So um, having the flexibility to be able to take time off of work when you may not be paid uh, to attend to a medical concern 
I'm a family physician, we stress prevention, we f want folks to come in proactively. Um, if you're a worker who doesn't get paid when you don't come into work, the idea that you're going to go to the doctor when you're feeling fine and take that time off of work um, is a really hard pill to swallow. And yet we still want people to be able to have the flexibility um, to, to do that preventive care that's so important. So one effect of poverty is to impose a set of damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't choices. But they're often easier to face for people who have more resources. When I think about that single mom who maybe has high blood pressure and uh, prediabetes, if I can give her some tools to help her eat a little bit better on a budget that can help her manage her stress a little bit more, Yes, that helps her. That helps her stress. Maybe it helps uh, uh, prevent the progression of her hypertension. Maybe it prevents her from developing diabetes. But it also helps her kids, right? It helps her to teach them to eat better. It helps her to be more accessible and available for them. It helps her to be more um, accessible and available to her community. And so really when we're thinking about um, – you know, the drain that poverty has on the health of a person, it's not just the drain on that individual, it's the drain on their family, it's the drain on their community that doesn't get the benefit of having them fully active and available. In June 2018, activists in the Poor People's Campaign offered powerful testimony before the U.S. House of Representatives about their experiences living with low income. My name is Amy Jo Hutchison, and I come from West Virginia. I've never spent a day in my life without poverty on some level. And I think it's really easy for us as human beings to punish people or dismiss, dismiss people because we don't love them. And we can't love them, we say, if we don't know them. So today I want to turn your attention to Ashley, who is 21 years old, and she has autism. But Ashley is so high-functioning autistic that Social Security says that she doesn't qualify for disability. But yet Ashley's not able to work because her mania it prevents her from being in loud, large crowds, loud spaces. She's tried several times, and she hasn't been able to keep a job because of her disability with autism. I want to talk to you about Frank, who was a Vietnam veteran who sat and told stories to me about elderly people eating cat food to survive. I want to talk to you about Megan, the single mom who told me, I've sold my blood to feed my kids. I want you to think about my own children. I have two daughters, and they travel to food pantries with me, and they help me to organize and collect stories. And even my children at the ages of 11 and 14 know enough to know that if you don't eat, you die. I talked to a junior in high school this year in rural county, and she was telling me that there have been three suicides in her high school within this year and over 140 fistfights. And I said, why? And she said, everyone's angry. I said, why are they angry? And she said, you can't be poor and you can't be happy at the same time. And I don't know about you, but in my experience living in West Virginia, that, that young lady that's a junior in high school just described the opioid crisis. I had Medicaid, and so without any notice, they told me I'd forgotten to send a form in in February, so this is April when I get the letter, and by the time I received the letter, I had just a couple of days notice that I no longer have health insurance, 
So please tell me as a poor person what I'm supposed to do. I have a bachelor's degree. I'm trying to heal a medical condition now with essential oils and prayers. While I work full time, I take my kids to the softball games. I'm doing everything that I can. I'm organizing around other poor people, predominantly low-income moms. And so I just don't think that we should have to give this much of ourselves in order to have a good quality of life in America, the richest country in the world. My name is Pamela Roche. I'm from Lowndes County, Alabama. And I live in a mobile home. And I got raw sewage. I don't have no, no money. I'm poor. Mm-hmm. And I have to travel back and forth to Birmingham to take my daughter with the CPAP machine. Don't have a car and don't have no way to take her. And then we have a high utility bill. And I pay. I was paying like three hundred seven dollars a month on the trailer, and it's hard. I can't. I couldn't buy my children's stuff for what they need. My name is Christopher Olive. I currently live in Grays Harbor County, which is in Washington State. I am thirty-three years old and a veteran of the U.S. Air Force. I received an honorable medical discharge in two thousand seven after four years of service due to complications from pancreatitis which the VA ultimately uh, determined to be a service-connected condition. Upon my discharge, I knew essentially nothing about the science of addiction and how it works in and ultimately changes the brain. I quickly went from taking my opiate-based pain management meds as prescribed to first slowly overusing them and then moving on to taking as many as I could handle, while at the same time watching everything I thought to be of value in my life slowly slip away. Not just material possessions, but really valuable things like relationships with friends and loved ones alike, and my own morals and values. This led to a 10-year period of drug addiction and periodic homelessness, of which the majority I was homeless. From drug addiction to misdiagnosed mental illness, there seems to also be a lack of compassion and humility. There is little to no access to treatment facilities transitional housing, or even affordable housing in Grays Harbor County. We all have the right to live. And we are fighting because this is my child right here, Jimena. Come on, mamas. Get up here. And I want her to grow up in a society where she's able to meet her grandfather who's in Mexico. I want her to grow in a society where she's able to get access to higher education without getting herself in debt. I want her to be able to breathe good quality air. We get the notices from Google, don't go out tonight, or don't go out today, or limit your exercise today because your air quality is bad in Los Angeles. I want her to have clean water something that in a lot of the communities we don't have. Central Valley in California, people can't drink water, and those are the folks that are working to feed America. Thank you. Again, Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Our campaign agenda is neither left nor right. It aims to challenge both sides of the aisle. It aims to reach toward the moral high ground, 
The agenda is rooted in the religious values of the prophet of Isaiah that every legislator ought to hear again since you put your hands on the Bible to swear yourselves into office. Woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of their rights and make women and children their prey. You should hear what Jesus said, not to churches and personal charity, but to nations. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was a stranger, an immigrant, did you receive me? When I was sick, did you care for me? Because every nation will be judged by God for how it treats the least of these. Exploring the experiences of underprivileged Americans. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information about this segment, Living on the Edge, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. Government assistance to the needy has evolved in the last century. Old age benefits through Social Security and unemployment insurance became national policy in the New Deal. Support then followed for people with disabilities. Over time, the federal role expanded with Medicare for older adults, food stamps and Medicaid health care for the poor, and other programs. Many states also joined in. But some Americans view costly welfare payments as creating dependency by the recipients. Again, Mark Rank of Washington University in St. Louis. So welfare reform has been going on for like 50 years. It's, this is nothing new. It's, it was, you know, in the Nixon administration, Carter, Reagan. Um, the Clinton administration had a major welfare reform um, bill that was passed. When I ran for president four years ago, I pledged to end welfare as we know it. President Bill Clinton, 1996. I have worked very hard for four years to do just that. Today, the Congress will vote on legislation that gives us a chance to live up to that promise, to transform a broken system that traps too many people in a cycle of dependence to one that emphasizes work and independence. Obviously, certain people will exploit any system of public assistance just as others can afford to engage lobbyists who manipulate our tax system in their favor. And some folks are caught up in addiction or are diagnosed with mental illness. Overall, though, recipients of welfare stay on these programs for less than a year on average. Mark Rank has studied assertions that the beneficiaries are taking advantage of public funding and have little motivation to get off the dole. Because there, it is so little that people get, there's virtually no disincentive. It's not enough. So here, here, here's a good example. I did a study to look at, does welfare encourage women to have more children? This is an argument that's been around for a long time, that, well, you know, maybe, maybe because you get more uh, money if you have another child, that's an incentive to have another child. So what I found was that actually the, the fertility rates of women on welfare were lower than women in the general population. And I talked to a number of women about this, and they said, you know what, 
you've got to be crazy to have another child for an extra $70 a month. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any economic sense. And, you know, how can you disagree with that? It doesn't make any sense. And yet, that idea has driven all kinds of, of reform measures. Now, if we were providing all kinds of generous benefits, at that point, maybe you'd say, well, you know, may, maybe there might be some, some disincentive effects, but that's not the case in the United States. We've got the weakest social safety net of basically any industrialized country. In his book, The Poverty Paradox, Mark Rank describes how some people are affected by inequality that's handed down over generations. He says some populations receive a cumulative advantage based on family and neighborhood, while others inherit a cumulative disadvantage. The way that this this operates is that if children are growing up in low-income homes, the resources that are available to them in terms of the quality of education they're getting and many other things is quite different than children who are growing up in an affluent background. They're likely to be attending really top-flight top, top schools, getting all kinds of resources. And what happens is those advantages or those disadvantages accumulate over time. That's why there's this, you know, if, you, if you're growing up in a poor, low-income household, you're much more likely to, as an adult, also be struggling because of this idea of cumulative advantage and disadvantage. And the way that I illustrate it in the book and, and in other places is, um, is with the game of Monopoly and thinking about you know, how Monopoly is played. So the standard, you know, let's say we have three players. Standard way um, of playing is that everybody gets you know, $1,500 and you start the game and you go around and the roll of the dice and the skill of the players determines who wins and loses. And this is the idea of a level playing field. That's the way we like to think the United States operates. But then I say, let's imagine a game where player one starts out with $5,000 and um, uh, several properties already you know, um, purchased. Player two starts out with $1,500, the standard, and player three starts out with $250. Now we're going to play the game. The rules are still the same. Luck is still involved. Skill is still involved. But given these prior advantages or disadvantages, player one is going to win almost all of those games. And that, that's kind of the reality in the United States. We have children who are growing up, you know, with very few resources and children who are growing up with many resources. And so it's not surprising that that's going to have an effect on how well you do as an adult. Particularly if educational opportunities are uh, unequal. Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's another, we talked about kind of the United States as being an outlier. Here's another way that the United States is very much of an outlier. Most countries fund their, their K through 12 system through um, kind of a centralized funding. You know, everybody kind of gets, depend, regardless of the school you attend, everybody is getting roughly the, the same amount of resources. In the United States, there are, as you know, there are wide differences depending on the wealth of the community. So much of school funding comes from the local tax base, the local property base. If you're in a wealthy community, you're going you're gonna to be able to fund your schools really well. And if you're in a poor community, you're not going to be able to do that. And so the quality of education that students are, are getting 
varies widely in the United States. Here in St. Louis, I mean, you can go 15 minutes one way, and I can I can point out a, a school that you know has uh, just all kinds of resources, and the students are getting a top flight education. And you can go 15 minutes the other way, and the school is falling apart, and 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 they're struggling to find teachers and resources, and so. Um, there's this vast inequality. And, you know, again, it's like that's going to have an effect on how well people do. And the ironic thing is that we talk about the importance in the United States of equality of opportunity, that everybody should have equality in terms of the kinds of things that can get them ahead in life. And one of those would be education. But it's just, it's, it's really a joke that we, we don't have a quality of opportunity at all. We have wide inequality of opportunity, and we ought to call it for what it is. You know, it's really hard to um, break out of that cycle of poverty. Again, physician Keisha Davis, who is African-American. Everybody needs help at some time in their life. Um, and sometimes that help comes from the government, and sometimes that help comes from family and friends, right? The, the parent who is able to gift their child $50,000, $100,000 uh, to help them purchase a house um, is a handout, just like that person who is uh, getting assistance or temporary assistance or food assistance from the government. They needed a little help to get by, a little help from our friends. You know, when I think about myself. I am a physician. My husband is, you know, also well-educated, working on his doctorate. And yet, when I look at um, our white colleagues who are in similar situations, the wealth that they have been able to acquire because their family has a history of wealth is different than what we have. It's another example of how family background can extend financial advantages or disadvantages to a person's status today. My parents were the first parents of, you know, of their generation to go to college. His parents, I think, his, uh, he, he had a grandfather who went to college. And so their ability to have a stable house, generate wealth, um, have enough to not only eke out a success for them, but also save up enough extra to give to the kids. Um, that takes generations. And I think African Americans are starting several generations behind. My grandfather's grandfather was enslaved. That wasn't that long ago. It takes generations um, to recover from that trauma of slavery. My father helped to desegregate schools. He was one of the first class of students to desegregate schools. People think about this as, you know, long ago and far away. That was just a generation ago. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Kathy Graham, Ken Rogers, and Rowan Edwards. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Laura Carlo, Nick Kausler-Rich, Jonathan All, and Jennifer Weingart. Thanks also to Steve Martin, Jack Klapish, and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org.
You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, Living on the Edge, is Humankind program number 296. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.